0: Jesus would quote the Old Testament. The the Bible tells us that Jesus is the Word of God, and so we find him quoting the Word of God actually through his ministry all the time. And there's two books that he primarily quotes out of, and as I was studying that, it may not be what you normally think, but it's Leviticus and Deuteronomy. You know, those are the books that you skip, like when you start the year through the Bible, and you're like, it's getting hard, I'll just jump these. Those are actually the books that Jesus quotes the most when he's going through his ministry. As a matter of fact, when he was pressed by religious leaders in one day, they asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And they press on him to try to trap him. Now, mind you, there was 613 commandments that they were referring to. And they thought, well, if we can get him, we can trip him up and try to like get him in a trap and get to show that he's not as wise as he really believes he is. And so he ends up quoting like a Leviticus, Deuteronomy kind of hybrid of what he does. And what we have is his answer in Mark 12, starting in 29. And it says this, And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. See, the greatest thing that he could tell them, the most important thing, that they would love God with their whole heart, and that the byproduct of that is they would love others as well. There is nothing greater than that because everything else hangs on those two very ideas. If you've studied the Old Testament and you're in Exodus, you usually get to the Ten Commandments at some point, And you read the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, if you didn't know, were broken up into two distinct categories. If you look at how they're structured and what God has given for His commandments, the first is this. The first category is how we deal and relate with God and how we inter- interact with Him. The second is very interesting. It's how we relate and interact with those around us. And those are the two main categories that the commandments are structured under. Now, Jesus is pointing to this very idea. As he's being questioned by a man of the law, he then engages him with the law of God. And then he would go on to teach, ultimately the parable of the Good Samaritan out of that section. When it says, well, who is my neighbor? He then answered through that. I'm not going to go into that. We did a whole sermon series in parables. If you want to go on our website, if you want to go to one of our podcasts, go to the parable section. We have a whole thing on the Good Samaritan. It might be really good for you to go ahead and take a look at. Now, I share this as an introduction, which is different than normal. Normal it's like some funny story about how I failed in life in some way. And then I didn't relate that, but I figured the best way to start would be with the words of Christ and how he engages this very idea. He's really setting the tone and the stage of what James wants to communicate as a foundation to what Christian living really looks like. So with that being said, I would love for you to turn to James chapter 2 with me if you have your Bibles. Uh, You can follow along on the screen if you'd like. If you don't have one and you're new, we have Bibles underneath the seats, and you can take that as a free gift. We'd love for you to have that and use that. Starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's go ahead and pray and get into this passage. Jesus, thank you so much for the book of James. Thank you for how it presses against us. Thank you that it is a mirror that reveals your greatness and it shows our fractured areas of our lives where we need to submit and surrender to you more. Lord, I ask that as we preach this morning that, Holy Spirit, you would move amongst your people as we talk about things that may be convicting, that we wouldn't look at that as frustration, but we would look at that as your hand and grace and mercy and love in our lives. I ask that we would be men and women that repent when we are shown the truth of your wisdom and your knowledge. Holy Spirit, if anything that I have written down that's not from you, I do ask that you would take it from my notes, that you would take it from my mind, that it would be what you want to communicate this morning to your people. I love you. pray this in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. Now, there was a problem with the men and the women in the church that were dispersed and spread out all over that area. And it revolved around this idea of showing partiality or favoritism to certain people that would come into their meetings. We would call that just church today. So where they would meet, didn't matter where it was, they would come together and they would teach and they would learn and they would sing and they would pray for each other. Kind of like what we do here. So he comes out of the gate and he just says, hey, if you are worshiping Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as the Messiah, as the Christ, this cannot be a part of your life in any way, shape, or form. It can't exist. And he starts with this picture that it, we might think, oh, he's just kind of making a hypothetical situation in this moment. Well, the reality is, he's not really making a hypothetical. Chances are, he's actually describing things that have taken place in the church, and he's kind of like, hey, I'm going like to really like flesh this out, because this is exactly what you're doing, and you're all probably going to recognize it as being the problem that exists. So it's not some, oh, this is what I think it is. No, this is what it is. Let's knock it off. And so we're going to start with the idea of the worth of a person. So let me paint the picture in a way that maybe we would understand. As you came in, you were probably greeted by some of our fantastic greeters. We have wonderful greeters. Marie does a great job of organizing all of that. We're thankful for her and her team. And they're at the door and they handed you a bulletin and they shook your hand and they probably joked about the weather and whatever. Or they, you, maybe you tried to skirt past them so you wouldn't have to talk to anybody. But they're there to serve you. And it would be as though... Someone came in, someone famous, or an actor, or a sports person, or someone who is really well known, if they came in, and they're like, oh, sir, oh, ma'am, and they pulled up in their fancy car, and they had a Super Bowl ring, or $1,000 suit on, you're like, oh, you're so great, how can I, and they're just gushing, and and fawning all over them, where do you want to sit, do you want a cup of coffee, I can go run and get you a latte if you want, like, whatever, whatever. And you're like, That's, isn't that how we should do it? I would say, yes, we should do that. And I think our team does a good job of that kind of stuff. But the problem would be is if someone came in who clearly looked homeless, who looked like they had been through the ringer, whose clothes are not really fitting well and aren't smelling great and are torn and are ripped and are, you, you just know they're in a hard spot. And if you were to see them, you're like, uh, we're going to just kind of ignore that person and hope that they maybe are just like walking by the church and not walking into the church. And then they come up, you're like, oh, I got to say hi. And so they're like, well, I got to mitigate this problem. You should really stand in the lobby because that'd be probably better for you. Like you don't want to sit too long and cramp up your legs. Just sit back here away from everybody else. And then you're like but don't sit in one of the chairs because they're really nice and they're fabric and you smell and i think that there's things on you that we don't want to describe right now so please don't mess up our chairs but then if they had to sit down you're like well you can just sit on the ground it's the ground's clean it's totally good we can mop that up it will be great and we try to keep them away from the congregation now luckily that is not our welcome team they are not like that at all they're fantastic but if we were to do that that would be problematic and he calls them out for that. He says, have you not taken the role of a judge in your own eyes and made a call with evil motives? Well, maybe you're asking, so, so what's the problem? Like, what makes this so bad? Well, the answer is that you are taking the place of God. You are sitting in the place of God. You might be thinking, Simon, Simon. That, that's a, that is a far stretch from what's really going on. Well, here's what's happening in that moment. In that moment, you're determining the worth and the value of that human being. How are you doing that? Based on what they have, how they look, and your interpretation of what is right and proper and good. And I'll just tell you that when we do that, we are doing that based on the world's standards not on God's standards. And so when we make those judgment calls, we are actually viewing outside of how God would view those individuals and who they are. Favoritism is defined this way, the practice of giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. See, we do this all the time. We we, we drop people in these categories constantly in life. I'll listen to you because by the world's standards, you have done well and you are wealthy. You've got your stuff together. You have popularity. You've made a name for yourself. They must be doing something right if all these great things are happening, right? I want that in my life. I'd like a little bit of what you got, so I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to, I'm going to follow your TikTok. I'm going to follow your Instagram. I'm going to listen to your podcast. I'm going to read your books. I'm going to follow your shows. Whatever it is, you're going to do that because you want a little what they have. Because based on the world standards, everything's going really, really well. Now, here's the problem that was going on in that day and in that age. You've got these group of men and women who were raised Jewish right? So they followed the law. They knew the law. They knew that if I follow the law that makes God happy, and if I make God happy, then everything's going to be great. And so they're coming in with that idea. Now they're not under the law. What are they under? Grace. Thank you. Yes. I always softball the answers. They're always going to be easy. Don't be afraid. Not going to trick you. And so they're under grace now, right? And so now they're learning how to live under the grace of God and and what Jesus did on the cross. This is one of the earlier books that we have in the New Testament. And so they're kind of figuring this out, but yet there's still this old draw on the way that they used to live and what they were raised in. It's hard to break our traditions, right? This is where you all say yes, because we all have a hard time with this. And we're all having a hard time when we have to change. And so they're learning that. So in their mind, this is what they believe. God gave us the law. If we follow the law, God will be pleased with us. God will show favor to us. He'll bless us, and we'll have all these great things. And so people that were rich would come in. What do you think they're thinking? They're following the law and doing what God would want, so therefore, he has blessed them, and we want to make sure that we lift them up and show them extra honor. Well, the adverse is true as well, isn't it? If you come in and you're poor and you're ragged and you look like garbage, then chances are God doesn't love you. You're not following the law. You're being under the penalty and the wrath of God and he's judging you. And so therefore, we want to make sure that you kind of feel that. We'll just kind of carry that idea out. This is the problem that was happening in this church during this time. And what it really was, it was a tit-for-tat relationship. If I do this, then God has to do this. If I follow your law, you have to bless me. If I do what you say, you've got to make sure that all my things go really well in my life. This, by the way, is primarily what Paul would write about all the time in the New Testament. Like, you are, these idea of uh, worshiping false idols was, this idol wasn't about a relationship, it was about the things that I wanted in life. And we start playing these games with God, where if I can, I'll do what you want as long as you give me the things that I desire. That's not a real relationship, is it? That's a transaction. And that's not what they have in Christ. So how do we know who has more worth than another person? Trick question. That's not actually a right question. All have worth because all are made in the image of God. God created them. He made them in his image, like him. So we all, as human beings, have Worth and dignity and value because we're made in his image. Everyone has that same value. None is higher, none is lower. See, this is God's upside-down kingdom. He's going to look at the rich and the poor, and he's going to explain this point and the idea of what favoritism looks like and why we should be showing that same gratitude and love and respect to all people. So you got to remember, the bulk of the men and women who are in this church are poor, which I find a little comical, right? So they're all poor. The very people that they're showing favoritism to aren't even like them. Like, they're in the same boat. So based in their own philosophy of understanding of what God would say with the Ten Commandments, they're like, well, they are being cursed by God because they're poor. But they're poor, so wouldn't that mean that that's them as well? But they could clearly look past that. That wasn't a problem for them. It's not a problem for us, I believe, at times. And so what ends up happening is I think that we kind of run, we fall into this category that I've heard from people over and over again in life. If I get my stuff together, God will be happy with me. If I pull up my bootstraps and I figure out how to get my life together, then I'll go to God. If I can clean myself up in my own ability then I can finally have a relationship with God because I got to get real clean to be in in front of this holy and just God. The problem is that's a works-based salvation. And the real problem with that is if you do, if you did have the ability to clean yourself up and to get yourself right with God, why do you need God? And why do you need a Savior? See, that's, that's the big idea. Like, you can't. You don't have the ability in your own to get yourself right with God. But yet when you do that, it starts to build pride in your life. I say it all the time, but the question is this, who are hospitals for? Sick Sick people. See, these are easy questions. These are not hard. They're for sick people, right? Like you go to the ER, you go to the hospital because something's broken, something's not working right, you need help, you might be dying. It would be insanity. If I ran into an ER and I'm like, Doctor, doctor, I'm super healthy. I'm so fit. I, everything is going great. Help me. You'd be like, You're going to help? You're going to put you in a padded room, sir. Like, you, there's a problem, but it's not physical. Like, that's the big idea. We wouldn't do that. We look at that as being crazy, but that's exactly what we do with God when we say, I'm going to clean myself up and get my junk together so I can be with God. Jesus even said, I did not come for who? Healthy. I came for the sick. That's what he said. He says that. See, this idea is that we need to realize that we need help. That we are in need. We talked about it last week in the previous section. We need to humbly admit that we are in need and that we are in need of Jesus Christ. We need a substitute to do the thing that we can't do on our own. We need the guy who lived the life that we can't live to live the life for us that we can't. That's what we need. We have to say to ourselves, I can't get my stuff together. I don't have the ability in my own power. As a matter of fact, the harder I try, the more mess I make. If you've had little kids, you've been around little kids, when they say, can I help you clean? The answer is always no. You will always make it worse. You will always make a bigger mess. I smeared the mud around in the carpet and I think I got rid of it, Dad. You're like, oh, now I have to put in a new carpet. That's what we do, by the way, in the salvation story, in the salvation and the redemption of humanity, we get to bring one thing and one thing alone to the table. Do you know what that is? Sin. We bring the problem. That's the only thing that we bring. We bring zero solution. That's who we are. We need to come to God and say, God, I'm broken. I have fractures in my life. I'm not complete. I don't have the teleos that we're talking about. And I need that fixed. (laughs) At times, those in need understand the real need that they need because they've seen it so much, don't they? When you're hurting, you can see how much the world is hurting, how much you're hurting. When you're in want, it's not hard, it's not a far jump to realize all the things that you actually need in life. And he's telling these people, like you, you guys, out of anyone, should understand your great need for the Lord, your brokenness. And what he's going to do, is going to connect this to the Sermon on the Mount and to the Beatitudes. And there's a couple of sections in this section that really line up with the Beatitudes and what he says. In Matthew, 3, uh, sorry, Matthew 5, 3, he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, this is what we're talking about. Until you can come to a place where you are poor in spirit and understand the true need in your life, you'll never understand why you need a Savior. You'll never get there. You can never make that jump unless you understand the real need that you have. He says that God chose the poor to be rich in faith, that, that we would be heirs of the kingdom of God. Leviticus uh, 10 would even talk about what does it mean to be blessed by the Lord is to serve the orphans and the widows. We just talked about that last week. See, the gospel will always attack anything that has to do with works and our ability to save ourselves. Now, here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that rich people can't have faith. It's not saying that rich people can't be saved. That's not what it's saying. So don't misread what it's saying, but let's be clear, it's really hard to see a need when you don't have any needs. When you have the ability and money can get you out of most jams, you don't seem to think that you need to call out to anyone else, you just need to call out to your bank account and like, hey, I got the money, I can take care of the problem. See, money will lie to us all the time. It can tell us that we can take care of ourselves. It'll tell us that we can support ourselves, that we have stability in our life, and that it's not going to be a problem. It gives us a false sense of security all the time. And if we feel secure, we have no need for God. And the thing that it will develop in your life is pride. Look at me. I... I did the thing. I worked hard. I made the money. I made the right choices. I did it. I don't need anyone. What I want to say is like, we think of money as being the solution out. And a lot of times we look at money as our our savior. You know, satan really has one objective in life and it kind of plays in two realms satan wants glory but on the other side of that coin he wants to make sure he takes glory away from god that's really what he wants to do if you want to boil down like what he wants he wants glory for himself and want to make sure that god doesn't have any And, and let me just tell you something Satan is completely happy to give you as much money as you possibly need as long as it distracts you from God and worshiping God and thinking that there's something great about you, or even worse, giving Satan glory for the thing you have. Like, the thing that you think could be a blessing is actually a curse, and at times I talk to people and I, I, you know, we didn't grow up with a bunch of money. And it's like, oh, if only I had money, if only I had money. Do you know that God loves you so much that at times he doesn't give you money because it's actually going to be the worst thing for you because it would drive you away from him? That he is using that ability to do that. So like, well, why does he give money to other people? Because he actually knows that they'll be able to, to worship him appropriately with it at times. See, he knows each and every one of our hearts. And because he's a personal God, he knows exactly what we need and how we need it. Now, what does that mean for someone who does have wealth? It means you've got to hold your wealth loose. You've got to hold it loose. Do not place your hope, your joy, your salvation in it because it will fail you. Remember where, when you read about all the people when the stock market crashed? Feels like it's doing it again, but that's another story. That they were jumping out of windows why because they had put all their hope into money and when that money was gone in an instant and their bank accounts all of a sudden went from lots of zeros to just one zero they didn't know what to do and they gave up on life i have met some amazing people with a lot of wealth and i tend to find that those that love jesus they have they hold their money loose and they are generous and they show the generosity of god through how they live in that see then he points to the fact that the the very ones that they're lifting up and showing favoritism to are the, actually the ones that are causing most of their financial hardships. Like, by the way, these people that you're showing favoritism to are the ones that are oppressing you. They're the ones that are exploiting you. They're the ones that are dragging you to court in lawsuits to take more of the money that you barely even have. Oh, and by the way, these are the individuals that are mocking and cursing the name of Jesus, the one who saved you. Now, you're like, well, I don't get, well, let me, let me put it this way. Let's say you came over to my house. Like, hey, come on over to my house. Let's have dinner, let's enjoy it. Bring your family, and we're having food, and we're laughing, and we're having a great time, and we're playing cheesy board games, whatever. And then all of a sudden, you start to tell me how horrible my wife is. And then you start to mock my wife. Now, when you come to, we're gonna have a conversation. That ain't going to work in my world. My wife is my wife who I love more than anybody else. Even my kids. I tell them all the time. I said, who do you love most? "Uh, Mommy. Well, then who? The dog. Well, what about us? I'm like, we'll get to you. (laughs) I love my wife. There is no way that you and I can have a relationship if you're going to speak poorly about my wife to me. It's a no-go zone. And yet this is what's happening in the church as you've got these people that are coming in. They're speaking poor against their Savior and they're fawning all over them. See how ridiculous that sounds? God will speak over and over again about showing partiality. Romans 2.11, Acts 10.34, 1 Timothy 5.21 Galatians 3.28, look them up. Bring them to your your life groups this week. Talk about those. He talks about there is no partiality with God. My first question is, do you see people the way that God sees them? Are you looking at them the way that the world does? Where do you need to check your favoritism at the door? The next point is the law of love. He's going to shift to the law in God's word. Now, remember, these men and women, they had this belief that if they did all these things, that God would bless them. So they're really saying, if I follow the law, God will continue to have favor with me. And if I'm following the law, I'm right with God. So that's what they're saying. So then he's going to kind of push against their belief in the law and what the law looks like in their life and if they are guilty or not. Now, we know that we need to submit to God's law because it's perfect and it's good for us. But I say this all the time. I used to ask kids this all the time, and then I realized that they didn't know. Then I started asking adults, and I realized that adults didn't know. I'm like, oh, no, we have a problem. And I always say, what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? And I usually get some answer that goes like this. To be a good person, to follow the rules, you know, to to be a good moral... I'm like, no! The whole point of the Ten Commandments is that you can't do it. You are unable to do these... 10, we couldn't do the one thing in the garden. We surely can't do the 10 things and we surely can't do the 613 that were added on. We don't have the ability to do it. The law was always meant to show how we're incapable of it. And so when we talk about the royal law, it's the law of the king, God the father, the son. See, let me put it this way. When he's talking about breaking the law you break one, you break all. So here, here's a, i have a Jeep, and maybe you've seen it. It's to compensate for all sorts of problems in my life, and I love it. It's completely impractical. It doesn't make any sense to drive around, but it's my favorite vehicle to drive. It's got a windshield that's basically a wall. It doesn't have a slant to it, and so when rocks come up, they hit it, and bad things happen. Jeeps are notorious for having broken windshields all the time. And so I had one that happened in Seattle. It hit the corner, right in the corner, They'll chip. But I couldn't fix it because it was in a bad spot. And over the next year and a half, it decided it wanted to walk all the way across the windshield to my eyes. And I said, well, when it gets here, I'll replace it. And then I'm like, well, when it gets here, I'll replace it. When it gets in my line of vision, it's literally right in my eyes. It comes up. It's perfectly in line with my eyes. It's like, it's, it's like it knows. Now, if you were to say, well, Simon, here's the thing. If you look at the percentage of the window... And the crack the crack is probably only about two percent of your window but there's 98 percent that's totally good would you say that that window is broken or not it's broken that's the point the window is broken like well why don't you fix it well I am cheap and I'm lazy and so I haven't done it for both of those reasons but here's the real reason I've become accustomed to it I have been around that crack for so long that I've just figured out how to get around it. When I drive into the sun and the sunset, I'm like, I can't see. It's like lightning in my eyes. I'm like, I'll just figure it out. This is a safe way to drive. And I've made room for it. And I've been okay with it. There is a fracture in my window that needs to be gone. I know that if it's gone, my life would be amazing. That it would be like, this is wonderful. I can see everything. And my window would have teleos. It would be whole. It would be complete but I'm doing exactly what these men and women were. They were sinning, and they were just like, oh, I'm okay with it. It, I'm I'm whole. I'm complete. Don't worry about the favoritism thing that I keep doing. Don't worry about the, the, the partiality that I'm showing. And they've been all right with it. He's saying, you have to get rid of this partiality because it's broken. The whole law is broken. God is perfect in all ways, so his law is perfect in all ways. And so if we break that law, we don't break a piece of it, we break all of it. God's law is like a giant windshield, and when anything gets there, that fracture ruins it. It doesn't work the way it needs to. It would be like, he gives another example. It would be like a man who was on trial for murder, and they've got DNA evidence. They've got all the information there. They've got video surveillance. They've got witnesses. He's more or less admitted that he did it, that he was in the spot with everything. And then in his closing argument, they say, well, hold on, hold on, just want to... I just want to say one thing here. All right. I did it. You got me. I'm the guy. But here's the thing. I have never cheated on my wife. I've been super faithful to her. It's all good. So because I did that, we're we're good here, right? No. He's still going to jail. Like, just because you do some doesn't mean that that, that Nolan voids the other problem. It'd be silly for that to take place. See, what he's doing, he's like, he's saying this. If you're going to use the law as your standard for your life, you're guilty because you're showing partiality. And then he just calls it out. Like, let me be really clear. If you are showing favoritism, if you are showing partiality, it's like, it is sin. It is rebellion against God. Those are his words. It's exactly what he says in that section. And I would say this, if there is favoritism in your life towards other people, if there is partiality you're showing, that is a sin. And God wants you to repent of it today. Because it will not create teleos in your life. It is fractured in your life. Here's the thing, you're like, why? Because it's anti-gospel. It's the opposite of the gospel. It stands against everything that Jesus did on the cross for us. The Bible would say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Like, you you realize that there is something that puts us on an equal playing field. What is it? Sin. Sin puts us on a level playing field with everybody else. Everyone's sinned. Everyone's guilty. Everyone's in the same position. Jesus came for everyone that would call on his name to be saved. Anyone that calls on the name of Christ will be saved. He died for all people's sin that was call out to him. In uh, 1 John 2.2, it says, He is the propitiation of our sins. And not for, our, for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Rich, poor, no matter what color, what kind of status you have, how you grew up, what gender you are, it doesn't matter. He came and died for all of us. There is no partiality. We are all in need of our sins to be forgiven. And if you have put your hope in following the law and you're doing this, you're guilty, which means you're under the punishment of God's wrath. That's why he's making the case this way. My question is, are you obeying parts of the law and disobeying others and thinking that God is totally okay with that in your life? See, we are unable in our own power to follow the law. We are sinners that need someone to save us. My next point is mercy is better than judgment. He's going to end with this idea. We talked about having freedom last week, um, living under the perfect law of God last week. And if you're confused on that statement, please go back and listen. I, I go into great detail to explain what that means. See, when we live in obedience to God, we can truly be who we were designed to be. Let the law of God show where you are fractured in your life. Let it wash over you and show you where the brokenness is where you're not whole, where you're not complete, where you're not trusting God, where you're not obeying God, where you're not listening to God, and realize that he loves you so much that he doesn't want you to have a fractured life. He doesn't want you to have a broken windshield. He wants you to be able to function the way you were meant to. He wants you to be able to see clearly. He wants you to look at the world the way that he does, And the gospel was, I'm going to send my best to save my people because they're all lost and in need of a Savior. They're broken and they're hurting, and we have that truth. And this church had the ability to reach out to those that were in deep, deep need. And they were brushing them aside. They weren't showing them the gospel. They were showing favoritism, which is the opposite of how God views the world. And they were losing the opportunity to get the gospel to move forward. Verse 13 is so good for us in this section. And I love how he kind of like lays it out. Do you want to live under the mercy of God? Or do you want to live under the judgment of the law? You get to put your eggs in one basket. And I mean, eggs are a hot commodity now, so don't be wasting eggs, okay? They're really expensive. But you can only put them in one basket. You don't get both. You can either put your eggs in the basket of putting your faith and your trust in jesus christ as your lord and savior for salvation we know god's standard is perfection because he is perfect Um, i know i'm not perfect if you are help me understand how to do that because i have failed for a really long time but we know that we're not we know that he's going to judge all of our sins and so we can place it in the life of christ who lived it perfectly and we can live through him or You can put your eggs in the basket of the law and see how that goes when you stand before a perfect and holy and just God and you have to give an account for your life. And and just, we don't say this enough, you will give an account for your life when you stand before the Lord. Everything you've ever done. You're like, well, there's things I don't want to talk about. Well, those are the things you're going to talk about. And if you want to stand in your own ability, if you want to stand in your own works, It's going to be a really hard day. And you will be punished because there will be wrath and punishment for sins. You can either let Jesus do that for you, or you can take it yourself. And that's what James is getting at. This this idea is, 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 is futile. It's foolish. And then he ends with this great saying. It says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Going back to Matthew 5, in verse 7, he says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's, a, it's an interesting thing when you realize how much mercy you've been shown in life. When you realize what Jesus is forgiving. Mercy is just not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's, very, it's a little different, but there's a difference the reality is this that we deserve punishment we deserve wrath we deserve separation from god because of our rebellion but god loved us so much that he poured mercy out on us we did not get what we deserved he took it as a substitution for us that we can rest in it and he gives us the ability to then once we've received mercy you know what happens when you understand the mercy you've been given it overflows doesn't it It pours out of you in every area of your life, and then you start to show that same mercy to others around you. For those that have received much mercy, they give much mercy. But if we don't understand that we actually have been given mercy, we'll never have the ability to extend that mercy to anybody. This is why you have to sit in that mercy. This is why you have to look at the cross because that is where mercy was poured out for us. And the work of Jesus, through the work of the Holy Spirit, can we truly be merciful. And we get to show this mercy to others every day, wherever we go, in every interaction that we have, that they would see the love of God, that they would get a glimpse of what God's mercy looks like in their life. Who do you need to start showing mercy to How do you need to start living this mercy out in your life? James is calling us to something that we don't have the ability to do, but grace and thanks be to God that he has given us the Holy Spirit, which shows us those areas and then empowers us to do that through the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this time where we could just press against our lives and who you are. Lord, I thank you for the example that there is no partiality with you. That you love all your creation because you've created them all. And they're made in your image so they have worth and dignity. Lord, I ask that we would be a church that shows mercy in that way because we've received so much mercy. There's nothing wrong with loving someone over the top. But when we do it for certain people and not others, that means it's not truly genuine in our life. And I ask that you would show us where we have those fractures where we need to confess that sin to you, where we need to lay that down at the cross and how we need to rest in that. Lord, we're so grateful for you. We thank you for this morning, thank you for this time. I ask you to continue to work on our hearts as we sing songs to you, as we we feel convicted, that we would just confess that to you and knowing that you are a holy,